You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 175, Von Steuben at Valley Forge. For the last couple of weeks, we covered events in France and Britain as the U.S. signed its first foreign treaty and Britain declared war on France. Before that, we left the Continental Army cold, hungry, and slowly falling apart in Valley Forge. In February of 1778, a Prussian officer made his way to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. I mentioned Friedrich Wilhelm Augustus von Steuben back in episode 136 when he met with Benjamin Franklin in Paris seeking a commission. The 47-year-old von Steuben had served as an officer in the Prussian army as a young man. He spent much of his early years in Russia as his father served as a lieutenant in the Russian war against the Turks. By age 14, he was serving with his father in the War of Austrian Succession, and by age 17, he had his own commission in the Prussian army and served in the Seven Years' War. Now, records of von Steuben's service in the Seven Years' War are somewhat sketchy, but he was wounded in two different battles during the war, and we know that he served as an adjutant for a couple of generals. By the end of the war, he was an up-and-coming young officer who had risen to the rank of captain and was serving as an aide-de-camp on the staff of Frederick the Great. When the war came to an end in 1763, though, so did von Steuben's military career. The size of the army shrank dramatically. Some officers remained in the peacetime army, but von Steuben did not make the cut. After leaving the army, Steuben got himself a position as a Hofmarschall, or what the British call a Chamberlain, for a minor German prince. In this role, he would be responsible for arranging events, trips, and supervising household staff. It could be a pretty good job with the right house. Unfortunately, the prince who hired him was broke. Steuben accompanied the family to France, where they tried to live rather simply while trying to raise cash. In 1771, a grateful prince bestowed the title of Baron on his loyal assistant. Despite their efforts, the prince and von Steuben remained broke. By 1775, von Steuben was looking for a commission in any army that would take him. He applied to the British, French, and Austrian armies, all with no luck. There is some speculation that rumors of his homosexuality may have prevented his appointment. There is no solid evidence to prove this, but there apparently were rumors of such activity circulating. In 1777, von Steuben got word that the Americans were looking for officers and went to see Benjamin Franklin. 
By this time, the American commissioners in Paris had already gotten pushback from Congress about all the commissions that they had already offered. So they weren't ready to send von Steuben to America with a pre-approved commission. Franklin did send von Steuben to America with a letter recommending a commission and saying that he had been a lieutenant general under Frederick the Great. This mistake was later attributed to a translation error since he had never held a rank above captain, but it also could have very well been Franklin just puffing up a young man's resume that he really liked. Even so, Prussia had a reputation for one of the best trained armies in the world, and Franklin believed that the Continentals badly needed von Steuben's experience. Von Steuben's ship reached Portsmouth, New Hampshire on December 1st, 1777. After spending 10 days there, his party made its way to Boston. There, he got a hero's welcome, meeting with John Hancock and Samuel Adams. What he did not get, though, was any money. He had arrived in America on some borrowed funds and had to cover his living expenses and those of his small staff as he awaited word from Congress about a commission. While he was in Boston, he met with several French officers who Congress had already rejected and were trying to find a way back to France. At that point, von Steuben began to worry that he might have made a terrible mistake in coming. Undeterred, he set out for York, Pennsylvania in mid-January, hoping to make his case directly to Congress. As it turned out, Congress had received word of his arrival and was interested in his services. Even so, von Steuben found himself navigating the politics of the ongoing Conway cabal as the head of the Board of War, Horatio Gates, and the Commander-in-Chief of the Army, George Washington, were barely on speaking terms. Von Steuben met with Gates to assure him that he would not become a Washington partisan. There was also the issue of Continental officers resenting foreign adventurers getting commissions over them, as well as the Continental Congress not having any money. Von Steuben agreed to serve as a gentleman volunteer, not taking a rank or salary in the army, at least not until he had proven himself. He only sought to have Congress cover his expenses. Instead, he offered to work on commission, asking that if, after Congress won the war and believed that he had contributed, that he be paid 600 guineas per year for his service, plus interest. A guinea was gold and at the time was worth just a little bit more than a British pound sterling. A Congress, of course, always liked the idea of paying later and accepted the offer. Congress generally welcomed von Steuben and found his agreeable flexibility on rank and pay rather pleasant. Von Steuben's view of Congress was a little different. Most of the delegates had gone home for the winter by the time he arrived in York. There were less than two dozen delegates still in York, and they were mostly the B-team. Many of the more prominent delegates were not happy with York accommodations. Not expecting much to happen over the winter, they found it a good time to take leave and go home. That said, Congress was still in operation and trying to keep everything running. As part of the negotiations, von Steuben requested that two French officers that had been denied commissions and whom he had met in Boston when they were on their way home, in fact, be granted commissions as his aides. 
Congress agreed and granted commissions to François-Adrien de Romanet and an engineer named Pierre-Charles Lafont. The latter might be a recognizable name to some of you, as he went on to design the new federal city at Washington after the war. Although von Steuben did not demand a formal commission, Congress gave him one anyway, that of captain. Now, von Steuben saw this as worse than no rank at all, since it was far below what he was seeking. I mean, even one of his aides had received a commission as a major. Congress, however, believed that it was important that he have some nominal commission in case the British captured him. They wanted to ensure that he would receive the courtesy given to other imprisoned officers. With that, von Steuben had the support of the Board of War under Horatio Gates and the tentative support of the Continental Congress. But all of this seemed to be a probationary trial. Everyone wanted to see what this man could do before they were willing to bestow rank and money on this unknown quantity. By the end of February, von Steuben left York for Valley Forge. General Washington met von Steuben on the road with an honor guard to escort him into camp. Washington was pleased to have the new officer, who very much looked the role of a European general. He wore his Prussian uniform with ribbons and medals on display. He was a large, barrel-chested man whose physical presence exuded leadership. Washington, of course, also was impeccably dressed and also impressed European visitors with his appearance as a commanding officer. However, von Steuben described his first encounter with Washington as rather awkward. Washington did not greet him as a friend, nor did he show any deference to him. Von Steuben took this as getting a bit of a cold shoulder. In fact, it was Washington's personality to greet virtually anyone with a formal reserve. The fact that Washington's rival, Horatio Gates, had just sent von Steuben to him at least caused Washington to be a little wary of this new officer. Again, von Steuben would have to prove himself. On visiting Valley Forge, von Steuben had to wonder what he'd gotten himself into. He saw men in camp, naked and starving, and on the verge of mutiny. It may have looked more like a refugee camp than an army. Desertions were on the increase. The main thing keeping many in camp was that they were too weak from hunger and cold to go anywhere. On top of that, the top military and political leadership was divided into Team Washington and Team Gates, with no real certainty that they would and could work together. Von Steuben became the informal inspector general for the army. It had to be informal because General Thomas Conway still formally held that role. After Washington had really given Conway the cold shoulder and refused to work with him beyond that absolutely required by his orders to do so, Congress had shipped Conway off to Peekskill. Even so, Conway retained his rank and position. Until he resigned or Congress terminated him, von Steuben could not become the Inspector General. That said, he took on the role and duties of Inspector General with plans to add more military discipline to the camp and to train the soldiers in the practice of formal military field drills. Despite the challenges, von Steuben seemed optimistic and was excited to begin his new role. He had been warned that all officers were living in crude huts, 
but on his arrival he received as his quarters a nice stone house that had been recently vacated by General de Kalb. Von Steuben was limited in his ability to get to know his fellow officers by the fact that he did not speak English. He did speak French pretty well. The president of Congress, Henry Lawrence, had advised von Steuben to seek out his son, John Lawrence, who was serving as Washington's aide-de-camp. Lawrence spoke French, and having spent many years in Europe, was hungry for good conversations with men of education and breeding. Lawrence and his fellow aide-de-camp, Alexander Hamilton, found themselves spending a great deal of time with von Steuben. Their positive view of this new officer helped von Steuben's standing with Washington, who trusted the judgment of his aides. The relationship also helped von Steuben's standing with Congress, since John Lawrence's ongoing letters to his father helped assure the President of Congress that von Steuben would be a real asset to the Army. General Washington gave von Steuben free range of the camp and had him as a dinner guest on most nights for the first two weeks of his stay. Von Steuben took careful notes and eventually reported his findings to Washington. His final report was a rather blunt assessment of improper camp layout, unfinished offenses, and an ill-equipped and poorly trained army. Washington did not give much of any response to von Steuben's report, nor did he pass it along to Congress. Some were concerned that Washington was offended by this blunt assessment. That, however, does not appear to be the case. Washington was still looking for the best way to use this new asset. Some in Congress wanted von Steuben to become the new quartermaster general after Mifflin had left the position. He had served in that role in the Prussian army. However, an American quartermaster would have to work with many civilians and merchants on the purchase of food and supplies. A German-speaking officer without any experience in American mercantilism might not be the best choice. So Washington put him to work drilling the soldiers. In March, as I said, he became acting inspector general. The role of drill master brought with it its own hurdles. First, many of the soldiers were too sick, too ill-fed, or lacked clothing to march outside. Von Steuben requested that the army give him a special company of 100 men drawn from across all the regiments who were sufficiently fit and dressed to drill outside. He also took 50 men from Washington's elite lifeguard as part of his first group of trainees. The goal was that von Steuben would train these men in basic drill and that they would in turn go back to their regiments and train the others. Even the 150-man group that he began with was too much. Steuben selected 20 of those men to drill while the rest of the group watched. They started with the very basics, how to stand at attention and march in step. Although Prussians have a reputation for strictness and the lack of a sense of humor, von Steuben quickly adjusted his demeanor to laugh with the men as they screwed up while gently correcting the smallest error in detail. Even with just this small group, von Steuben still had his problems, one of the biggest ones being that he still could not speak English. He had to give his commands in French to an officer who would then translate into English. The training was slow going at first, 
Von Steuben would curse and shout when the inexperienced company screwed up a command. There's a fun story of Von Steuben calling over his translator and telling him to swear at the men in English for him. Over the next few weeks, Von Steuben learned the English swear words himself, but the model company also got better at the drill. Von Steuben also quickly gained a favorable reputation. He was one of the few men in the American leadership who would regularly interact with the ranks and let them complain to him. He also held parties at his house for junior officers. According to one story, he said that no one could come into a party who had a fully intact pair of pants. This was in response to the fact that many men had tattered clothes that were literally falling off their bodies. He wanted those who were suffering the most from this deprivation not to feel ashamed about coming to his home for entertainment. This group quickly became known as the sans-culottes, which in French means without breeches. This is not to be confused with the radical group of the same name during the French Revolution. Uh, that group took its name from the fact that its radical members chose to wear more modern trousers rather than the old-fashioned knee breeches. In von Steuben's case, the men had no pants at all. Uh, given that von Steuben was believed to have been a homosexual, there may have been other reasons why he enjoyed having young men hanging around his home without pants. During the drill, many officers and men from other regiments wandered over to watch the training. Camp life was dull, and the men got a kick out of watching von Steuben scream and rant when the men screwed up at drill. Von Steuben recognized that the source of amusement worked for him and began exaggerating his temper tantrums. Von Steuben focused on march and moving in lines rather than firing their guns. He wanted the men to look and feel like an army when marching onto a field. The men already knew how to fire a gun, and doing that in precise steps was not as important. Von Steuben also did not have a training manual for the Continental Army. He would later write the manual, which would be used until the end of the War of 1812. But for now, he was just using the memory of his old Prussian military drill and adapting it on the fly as he saw fit. Von Steuben also quickly realized that the American character would not accept an overbearing officer. After the war, he wrote to a European colleague and commented that Unlike a European soldier, where you simply told them to do this or that and they obeyed, in America, you had to explain why it was important to do this or that, and then they obeyed. Von Steuben's training began in late March 1778. After only a few days, General Washington saw the progress. He ordered his regimental commanders to cease any training until they had received experience with von Steuben's methods. He also called on nominations from his officers for an inspector general, ignoring the fact that General Conway in Peekskill still held that office as established by Congress. A week later, Washington began referring to von Steuben as the inspector general. The model company began spreading the training throughout the regiments. By mid-April, much of the army had received at least some training in the new drills. Not only was General Washington impressed with Steuben's results, the entire army seemed to fall in love with the new drill master. He became highly popular with officers and men, despite the language barrier between most of them. 
In late April, when Congress accepted General Conway's offer to resign, Washington immediately wrote Congress requesting that von Steuben not only be given the position of Inspector General, but that he also be commissioned as a Major General with the full pay that was accorded to that rank. Within days, Congress approved both of those recommendations. Washington, however, did not inform von Steuben immediately about his promotion. On May 1st, Valley Forge received the news that France had signed the Treaty of Alliance. The army was celebrating that soon France would give them the much-needed supplies, money, and armies they needed to defeat the British once and for all. Washington called for a grand review of the army on May 6th to celebrate the French alliance and give von Steuben an opportunity to show what the men could perform. The review went off well, and afterwards the officers had a celebratory party and offered toasts all around. Washington used this opportunity to inform von Steuben that he was now Major General von Steuben and that he was officially the Continental Army's Inspector General. The new general would receive a full staff of aides and inspector generals to assist him with his mission. The Continental Army put its faith in him as a leader. Next week, we're going to step away from Valley Forge again to hear about the Continental Navy and the sinking of the Randolph. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My continued thanks to Train Ants and George Davis for their continued support at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Thanks also to Mike Hager's support at the Robert Morris Circle level, as well as everyone else who can chip in on Patreon. Everyone who supports this podcast on Patreon at the $10 per month level or higher receives a monthly magnet with a different flag from the American Revolution. I think at this point I've printed about 20 different flags so far, and I have plans for about a dozen more at least. I'll admit I'm getting into some pretty obscure flags from the era, but each magnet comes with an explanation of the flag, including its description and history, 
people seem to like them. Anyway, it's my way of saying thanks for your support of the podcast. If you don't want to commit to that much, you can support the podcast on an ongoing monthly basis on Patreon for as little as $2 a month. And of course, if you don't want to make a long-term commitment, I'm more than happy to accept a one-time contribution via PayPal, Venmo, or a variety of other sources, all which are listed on my website and blog. Thanks also to George Hunter, who did make a one-time donation via PayPal recently. Also this week, I wanted to take a moment to note the closing of City Tavern in Philadelphia. Now, the original City Tavern opened in 1773. It fed and provided drinks for the Continental Congress in those early years. Now, that original building burned down in the mid-19th century, but in preparation for the Bicentennial in 1976, Congress authorized the reproduction of the original building to be built on the same location. Now, initially, in the Bicentennial era, a modern restaurant opened up in that building. But in 1994, Chef William Staub took over and created a new menu based on 18th century recipes. So the tavern really returned to its roots, offering the public a chance to experience 18th century dining, but I think with better sanitary standards. Sadly, the tavern announced it has closed permanently, a victim of the restaurant closures and drop-off in tourism due to the COVID-19 epidemic. Personally, I've enjoyed many drinks and meals at the tavern with friends over the years. It's been a great place to dine for those of us who like to focus on the founding era. My thanks to everyone who kept the tavern running over these many years, and I sincerely hope that once all these difficulties are behind us, someone will be able to restore the tavern to its former greatness. Anyway, this week's episode took another look at Valley Forge. General Friedrich von Steuben was one of those European adventurers who came looking for opportunities for military leadership and found it in America. Not only did Steuben create the first army manual that would be used throughout the war and the first decades of the U.S. Army, he would also go on to serve as a division commander in the Continental Army during the war. After the war, Steuben settled in America. The state of New Jersey gifted him a mill with the condition that he lived there. Steuben did live there for a few years, but his financial situation forced him to sell it back to the son of the Loyalist from whom it had been confiscated during the war. Steuben lived for a time at a country estate in Upper Manhattan, then moved to a cabin out near where Rome, New York is today. He lived on a pension from Congress for his war service and also served as a regent for New York's university system. I mentioned in passing in the main show that Steuben was believed to have been a homosexual. There is no explicit statement of this fact from contemporary sources, but that was because during the time when von Steuben lived, homosexuality was a capital crime. One simply could not live openly as a gay man in the 18th century. That said, people tended to treat Steuben on a don't-ask-don't-tell basis during his time in America. He did form two close friendships with two Continental captains, Benjamin Walker and William North, the latter of which later became a major general in the Army himself. After the war, Steuben formally adopted both of these adult men, 
which was the only legal family relationship that they could have at the time. And upon von Steuben's death, these two men inherited the bulk of his estate. Von Steuben is remembered as one of the most important foreign officers in advancing the cause of America during the Revolution. The area where he once lived in upstate New York is now known as the town of Steuben, New York. Now, you may notice I've pronounced him Steuben throughout this podcast, and the modern pronunciation is Steuben. Based on what I've read, in the 18th century, his name was pronounced Steuben. If you would like to read more about him, this week's book recommendation is The Drill Master of Valley Forge, The Baron von Steuben and the Making of the American Army by Paul Lockhart. This biography gives some background on his early years, but focuses on the general's years in the Continental Army. At about 300 pages, not counting notes and index, it gets into pretty good detail about the man and his contribution to the American cause. The author, Paul Lockhart, published the book in 2008. Professor Lockhart teaches history at Wright State University in Ohio and has written a number of other books on warfare in 16th and 17th century Europe, as well as a book on Bunker Hill. So, if you want to read more about von Steuben, you may want to get The Drill Master of Valley Forge. For my online recommendation, I'm going to recommend von Steuben's Army Manual. It's called Regulations for the Order and Discipline of the Troops of the United States. Steuben continued to make changes to this manual both during and after the war. The version I found is from 1794. It's not exactly riveting reading, but if you're a reenactor or just want to understand better how drill worked in the Revolutionary War, this manual is a good primary resource. You can search for the online document on archive.org. Just search for the title, Regulations for the Order and Discipline of the Troops of the United States. But of course, the easier way is probably just to use the direct link on my website. Remember, if you're listening to this and looking it up the week of the release of this episode, you can find it right at the top of the website. If you're looking later, I have a link to a list of former online recommendations, and you just look up the recommendation for this week, and there's a direct link there. Also, for the blog episode, I include a link there as well, so you can just go to the blog episode and click on the link to go to the online resource. My blog, of course, is at blog.amrevpodcast.com. If you would prefer to have a paper copy of the manual rather than just read it online, I've also included an Amazon link to buy a hard copy of the manual, and you can find that also at the bottom of the blog episode. Remember that if you click on any of my Amazon links, you help benefit this podcast as I get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. And just between you and me, if you go there and you buy other things completely unrelated to the original link that you used to get to Amazon, I still get a commission on whatever you buy. So this is a great way to support the podcast if you're buying items on Amazon anyway and want to help support the show without paying anything extra. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.
What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.